So this morning's reading comes from Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to chapter 9, verses 1. Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do the people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Let's pray the words from the end of Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, thank you for the wonderful worship. Uh, Great uh, songs. Uh, It makes us feel like home uh, when we're singing together like that, and I'm sure it's a foretaste uh, of heaven. And that's where I want to take you today. I, I, I sort of felt... I sat down last night, or after they spoke yesterday, and I thought, man, I've left you out in the wilderness uh, with Cain. Uh, you were probably all in a state of deep depression uh, after the second talk yesterday, uh, like Cain fugitives, exiles. What I was trying to lay down for you was what happens uh, when we reject God's word. When we go our own way, uh, that's where it takes us. And, of course, it doesn't get much grimmer uh, than Genesis chapter 4 with Cain unless you want to go through uh, the flood and then to Babel it actually in many ways does get worse or just unravels on a wider scale sin uh, disobedience does lead uh, to alienation, alienation with God, alienation between people and society and it does ultimately lead to death But the question that we face today actually is also God's answer to us. And the question is, uh, who do you say Jesus is? I don't know about you, but whenever I talk to non-Christians about uh, faith, they tend to want to get on to Genesis 1 and 2. They want to debate creation and evolution. Personally, I don't know of anyone who's come to faith Uh, through debating Genesis 1 and 2. If you want to uh, bring someone to faith, you've got to ask them, who do they say Jesus is? You're going to be on a lot surer ground anyway because you're going to know a lot more about Jesus than they do. 
whereas they might know a lot more about science uh, than you do. But that latter's not the point. The point is that it's Jesus that we want people to know. And Paul in Romans 5 tells us that Jesus uh, is Adam, the new Adam. He is the antitype. Death came through one man, but so too does life come through one man. And that man is, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's absolutely essential that we, uh, the descendants of the old Adam, find the new Adam, the new life in Christ, or we are doomed to live out our lives as fugitives like Cain. Well, this uh, reading from Mark's Gospel, in many ways I should have uh, got Letitia to start at verse 22, because uh, it's a two-part question, isn't it, that Jesus asks. He first asks, who do other people say that I am? And then he asks, who do you say that I am? And it's interesting, or well, I find it interesting, that in the what happens just immediately before this, is that Jesus heals a blind man. And strangely and uniquely, that healing is also in two parts. Remember, Jesus uh, touches the man's eyes and lets go and he says, what do you see? And he says, I see people moving around, but they're like trees. And so then Jesus touches them again. We're told he opens his eyes. He sees clearly. Why does Jesus do a two-part healing? Well, we know it's not because he's not capable of healing instantly. So it is right, I think, to assume that the healing is somehow linked to the two-part question he's going to ask his disciples. Because really, it's about sight for them too, isn't it? Do you see me clearly? Do you really know who I am. And I think the first question, who do others say that I am, which elicits the response, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, who of course was taken up and didn't die and was expected to return. Others say one of the prophets. I think that answer is inadequate. That's a partial seeing. That's like seeing people, uh, or like seeing, seeing Jesus walking around like a tree. It's not really seeing who Jesus is, because Jesus is much more than any of those people. He is the Son of God. And if you go through Mark's Gospel, and did you do Mark's Gospel last year? Did I pick that up from someone yesterday? Your house group did, so... You probably already know all this, but Mark's gospel begins with a very clear statement, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I always used to think Mark's gospel was the simplest. You know, and people say, well, of course it's the shortest, which is, which is helpful in a way, but we always used to told, if you want to introduce people to the gospels, give them Mark because it's simple. The more I've looked at Mark, the more I see how subtle Mark is as a theologian. Matthew and Luke are always making the connections for you. You know, this, particularly Matthew says this was to fulfill the scripture. But Mark's more of a tease. And he leaves us 
or to watch people try and work it out. And so having made that first statement, uh, he gives you plenty of evidence about who Jesus is, that he is indeed the Son of God. He immediately begins with a statement about a messenger coming where he draws on Isaiah chapter 40. And Isaiah's uh, prophecy in chapter 40 after he says God will comfort uh, his people is to say that a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now the Lord is in block capitals. In other words, it's God. Prepare the way of God, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then he goes on, the glory of the Lord, that's God again, shall be revealed. Now if you look at that in the context of the gospel, who is coming? Well, clearly it's God himself coming. The messenger is announcing God literally coming down to bring his glory to his people, back to his people. So when you hear of theologians, and there's many of them, and so-called biblical scholars who tell us that Jesus was not or had no awareness that he was God's son, you can laugh at them. You can do what God does in Psalm 2. You can laugh them to scorn. How can they possibly say that? You know there's a crowd that set themselves up called the Jesus Seminar. Have you heard of the Jesus Seminar? group mainly of North American theologians, but there was a New Zealander on there, one of Lloyd Gehring's disciples, uh, Jim Veach from Victoria University. And they had, I can't remember, I think it was five different coloured highlighters, and they would sit around in this learned group, and they would go through, go through the Gospels, and they would use a different colour to grade the different verses in the Gospel. And the more they did this, the more they used the one colour which said, Jesus couldn't possibly have said this. Anything miraculous, of course, got the black marker that was added in. That was made up by the gospel writers. Any reference to the church or anything beyond him, that got a, a, a sceptical mark too. You got nothing left virtually, as if the gospel writers didn't know what they were saying. Well, I'm telling you, you know as much as these theologians because you've got the same gospel. And the gospel is quite clear that Jesus is not just a great man. He is indeed the Son of God. And we see various ways that Mark shows people that they should know that. The original uh, hearers and those who first met Jesus. Firstly, in uh, chapter 2 and verse 7, remember Jesus heals a paralytic and there's the argument about whether he can forgive sins. It's a perfectly valid objection. Why? Because only one person can forgive sins, and that's God. So what's Jesus saying? He doesn't specifically say it, but he is proving that he can forgive sins. He is proving that he is God. There's no two ways about it. In chapter 4, we have the first time he calms a storm. Well, again, in the Old Testament, who can calm storms? Only one person, uh, and that's uh, said in Psalm 107. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Mark doesn't 
make the connection the way Matthew or Luke would, but it is quite clear that Jesus is doing what only God can do. When he feeds the 5,000, he says they are like sheep without a shepherd. Who was going to come and shepherd Israel? Well, you go to Ezekiel 34 to 36, and you find that Yahweh himself will be their shepherd. Again, a clear claim to divinity. And then Jesus walks on the sea. Now, some interpreters have said, well, here's the new Moses. He's uh, like Moses leading the children of Israel through the Red Sea, which parted. That's actually not the link at all. Moses didn't get wet because the water parted. He walked through on dry land. Jesus actually walks on the sea. He walks over the water. And to understand the reference there, you need to go to Job chapter 9 and verses 8 to 11. We read Job's reply. He says, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Who made the bear and Orion and so on? Who does great things beyond searching out? Behold, sorry, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? Behold, he passes by and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. And verse 8, he trampled the waves of the sea. And verse 11, he moves on, but I do not perceive him. When we go to Mark 6 and verses 45 to 52, we find exactly the same words. Jesus comes walking over the sea and we're told that he passed by or went as to pass by the disciples. That surely is an allusion to Job. He passed me by, but I knew him not. And then his words to the disciples there, do not be afraid, I am. And our translations or your translation, it's, it's, it, it's likely to say, do not be afraid, it is I. But the literal uh, Greek is, I am. And where have you heard that before? Moses, the burning bush, who shall I tell the people back in Egypt? The Israelite slaves, you are. And God says, tell them, I am. Again, a clear claim on Jesus' lips to being not just a prophet, not just a miracle worker, but God himself. And lastly, uh, the rather curious uh, incident in chapter 10 and verse uh, 18, I'm picking up where Jesus Remember, the rich young man comes to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus seemingly rebukes him and says, Why do you call me good? God alone is good. I don't know about you, but when I was younger, I always assumed that Jesus was rebuking him and putting himself down. But there's no evidence of that at all. Jesus was actually saying, testing him and saying, you've called me good. Why? Only God is good. Are you saying that I'm God? Interestingly, the rich young man backs off and then only calls him teacher. He's missed his opportunity 
to be the first person in the gospel to actually recognize that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Do you know the first person to call Jesus the Son of God in Mark's gospel? The centurion at the cross, a Gentile. Even Peter calling him the Messiah doesn't get us there. Jesus isn't just the Messiah. Mark makes that clear in verse 1. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's saying something a whole lot more. You see what uh, Peter understood by the Messiah was a great king, an anointed ruler. And we know from things like the Psalms of Solomon that what Jews expected in a Messiah figure was someone who would basically come and kick the Romans out, kick all the Gentiles out of Jerusalem, restore the cult to what it should be. That was not Jesus' mission. And that's why Peter is rebuked so severely when it's quite clear that that's the sort of Messiah that he's expecting. No, Jesus says that the Messiah must suffer and be killed. Who will kill him? The very people who who claim to know the scriptures, the very people who should recognize that he is the son of God, the people who should have made those illusions. And I say it's not much different uh, today, is it? The very people who should be affirming the scriptures are the skeptics who are telling everyone, well, Jesus really was only made the Son of God by the gospel writers and by the early church. He did not intend to be understood in that way. That is just garbage. Don't believe it. It is essential, not only that we know that Jesus is the Son of God, but that we ourselves confess him. That's why Jesus says, Who do you say I am? It's not good enough to have the faith of your parents or of your church. You have to confess Jesus yourself as the Son of God and you need to understand exactly what that means. That that means that you worship a God who has come amongst us, who has suffered for your sin. But note chapter 9 and verse 1. A Messiah whose kingdom will come in power. And that is, of course, a reference to both cross and resurrection. Jesus is immediately, or at least after six days, the next thing we read is that he went up a high mountain and he was transfigured. Jesus, having rebuked Peter for his misunderstanding, for his dull-headedness, then gives him a glimpse of the glory that he will have, which is going to far exceed the glory of the Messiah figure that Peter and the other disciples imagined. He sees that Jesus is indeed greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, He is in glory, transformed, radiant as God's son. And Peter is simply blown away. 
Well, let's have a very quick glimpse at what we can expect with the coming of Christ because that is the ultimate goal. There will be uh, suffering. He warns the disciples of that, that they too are likely to suffer. But that's the time between now and when they are joined with Christ in eternity. What it means that Jesus is God's son and that he rules in power, as seen in that transfiguration, is that the end is already fixed. And the end is in many ways a reversal of the beginning. And so we go back to what we talked about yesterday. We saw that sin was disobedience against God. Jesus, as God's son, was perfectly obedient. As the new Adam, he did what the old Adam failed to do. He resisted Satan's temptation, the temptation to go the easy way, but remained perfectly obedient unto death. Because he was perfect, because he had no sin, he could take our sin on himself, and his death then was an atoning death. He didn't die for his sin, he didn't need to die, but he died for our sin. His shed blood covers us, just the way God covered Adam and Eve when he expelled them from the garden, removing, or at least partially removing, their shame. Of course, Jesus' blood is much more effective than any human clothing. Uh, I think the writer of the Hebrews it is, says that his blood was not like the blood of Abel. It was shed for a purpose, and that was to cover, to remove our sin to redeem us. And Jesus has achieved victory over Satan. Satan, the most cunning, the most crafty of all beings, is now defeated and his destination is to be destroyed. And of course you have to go to the end of the book of Revelation to uh, read that uh, gory tale, how the defeat of Satan will come when he is thrown into an everlasting lake of fire. And then there is, of course, the new creation, the return, if you like, to paradise, to Eden. Jesus' kingdom will be restored, will come on earth as it is in heaven, the vision of the heavenly Jerusalem coming down on this earth, by the way. The whole earth will be taken over by the heavenly Jerusalem, the renewed earth, and we are told then that everything that is out of order will be put in order. Creation will not only be restored, but the new creation will be fabulously better than the original creation. We're not just going back to Eden. We're going to the heavenly city where there is no crying, no mourning, no suffering, and above all, no death. And we find that God's presence with man is restored. One of the big uh, problems, of course, with the fall was that man was removed from God's immediate presence. We are distanced from God, but in the new creation, we will be restored fully. Remember two things I said, that the uh, rule of man had uh, degenerated over chapters 2 and 3. The godly rule, the right rule that was given was spoilt first with the conflict between Adam and Eve as they struggled for power, and then Cain had the struggle with himself. 
who would rule him? Would sin, would Satan rule him? Well, that too is set right. God pours his spirit into us. He deals with our desires. They are aligned with his purposes as we're filled with the Holy Spirit and his rule, his righteousness, his justice will prevail. Of course, it's meant to do that uh, in a microcosm in the church. We are meant to, uh, the kingdom has begun to come in us, but the day will come when it comes in fullness. And then lastly, uh, life, immortality is restored. Remember when we were put out of the garden, the way to the tree of life was blocked. We were destined to die. We find in the heavenly Jerusalem uh, the river of life flowing through and on either side the tree of life. Now don't ask me how one tree uh, lines both sides of the river, but it does and it contains the healing of the nations. And we're told there is no more death. Paul, of course, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, climaxes by saying, Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Death is defeated. And now uh, we live uh, in God's kingdom, rightly ordered for eternity. The challenge, of course, is living in the meantime. You will go home, uh, people still die, people still suffer. And life is hard. Jesus makes no bones about that. But his challenge is, are you going to surrender an eternal future for what you might think can be a better now, going your own way? Or are you going to say, I'm going to surrender my own life now to Jesus because I know that in time I will then inherit an eternity in God's kingdom? The famous quote from Jim Elliot, who gave his life, of course, uh, in South America, he said, he is no fool who surrenders that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. That's uh, the message of Mark here, isn't it? It's the message of the gospel, that our life is in Christ. At the moment it's hidden Christ, but as his children, uh, we will inherit uh, his kingdom and have a wonderful future to look forward to. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, encourage one another with these words. And so I leave you with that now. Let's uh, pray, let's close in prayer and thank God uh, for the future before us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your gospel is indeed uh, truly good news for us. Lord, we know that while we have troubles in the present, whilst this world is still uh, marred by the fall, we have this uh, glorious inheritance which we already have secured by the deposit of your Holy Spirit in our lives as we put our faith and our trust in you. Lord, help us to be those who proclaim Jesus as Lord, not only with our lips but in our lives. Lord, help us as we bring this challenge to others. Who is Jesus to them? Lord, help us to lead others to you, that they too 
may know the life that is ours in Christ. Lord, we pray that as we go from here later today, we might go strengthened uh, and in the power of your spirit, living for your glory. Amen.